Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm very proud to say that this episode of Macabre London is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash macabre London. Audible has over 180 titles to choose from, from your iPhone, Android, Kindle or MP3 player, and I'll be recommending one of those books later on in the show. An eye for an eye is a saying that you are more than likely familiar with. The law of Italian, as it is also known, is the act of treating one offence with a similar retaliation. The ultimate embodiment of this saying is capital punishment. When a crime committed by an individual is so heinous that the sentence delivered by a judge matches that of the perpetrator, death. But when the state decides that a human being is no longer worthy of their life, who should be the one to take it and bear the weight of the executed soul? This time on Macabre London, we uncover the life and many deaths of John Ellis, Britain's chief hangman. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around these streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of those stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drews and this is Macabre London.
Throughout the history of London, punishment by execution was thought to be an effective deterrent to those who may be thinking of embarking on a life of crime, not conforming to society, or generally not upholding the beliefs of the most popular church at the time. Executions were carried out in their hundreds, and even thousands, for arson, theft, heresy and even witchcraft. Before the reform of capital punishment in the early 1800s, the total number of crimes that could be punishable by death reached a whopping 220, and seemed that the abuse of power by the wealthy to abolish the poor had climaxed. People were being executed for crimes as minor as begging without a licence, stealing from a rabbit warren, and even darkening one's face with the intent of carrying out a crime. Not even committing the crime, just effectively dressing the part would get you sent to the noose. The most alarming crime on the list states that if a child displays recognisable and intentional malice between the age of 14 to 17, he or she must be executed. Now, I don't know how well behaved you were throughout your teenage years, but I know if I'd been around back then, I probably wouldn't have lived to tell the tale. At the peak of the bloody code, as it later became known, the deterrent of being executed for committing such small crimes didn't have the desired effect. And with an overwhelming amount of death penalties being handed out, with only one in ten actually making it to the gallows, the risk seemed worth taking. The methods of execution developed over the years, from the initial practices of beheading, being hung, drawn and quartered, to being burned or boiled alive. But as civilization seemingly developed, its methods and reasons for delivering a permanent sentence changed exponentially. As time passed and attitudes changed, the death penalty was reserved for those considered to be the worst crimes of all. In 1861, the list of crimes that a criminal could be executed for was trimmed down to just five. Treason, arson in royal dockyards, piracy with violence, espionage and murder. Hanging was decided upon as the quickest and most humane form of execution, and this was to be the only method used from then on. The practice of public executions, having been a day out for all the family, were now confined to be carried out away from prying eyes, and the prisoners allowed to be put to death quietly. The last public execution in England happened outside Newgate Prison in the City of London on the 26th of May, 1868. And after that, all executions were to be made private. Well, as private as they could be within the confines of a prison. With the exclusion of all other methods of execution, hanging became a craft for those who were picked to step up to the worst job imaginable, and hangmen took pride in being able to deliver a swift exit for the condemned. You would think that those who applied to be hangmen may have accidentally signed the wrong piece of paper, and found themselves stood by a trapdoor with a lever without much clue of what they were about to do. But often hanging would run in the family, so to speak. The age-old, my dad was a hangman, and his dad before him, and his dad before him, etc, etc. But some people did actually just simply apply for the job. John Ellis was one of those people. When working at a textile factory, Ellis found himself and a gang of colleagues discussing a recent execution. 
and he exclaimed that he wanted to be a hangman. He said the compulsion and the thought came from nowhere and that he'd always been a gentle soul who couldn't hurt a fly, in fact any animal, saying that he couldn't even bring himself to wring a chicken's neck when asked to by his mother. So his compulsion to suddenly end human life was a shocking revelation to himself, let alone his family. At 22, he broke the news to his wife and parents that he had written to the High Sheriff of Lancashire with his request to become the next chief hangman, and the sheriff in turn had referred him to the governor of the aptly named Strangeways Prison. Strangeways, despite having a name that sounds like a life choice for most of its inmates, actually derives from Old English and means waterfall, so it seemed fitting that this would be the place that Ellis would fall over the edge into his profession that would change his life forever. After a short meeting with the governor, where he was posed the question that everyone receives in a job interview, why would you like the job? Ellis gave a rather unsatisfactory answer. He didn't know. Born in 1874, Ellis grew up in Rochdale. His father was a barber, and Ellis despised the occupation, so much so that he ran away at 19 to avoid having to join the family profession. After a few years out on the road, earning a living from busking as a singer, and taking on odd jobs in various towns, he eventually returned to the family business and resolved himself to setting up shop as a barber himself in order to provide for his wife. Ellis didn't think his application to join the death profession would ever go anywhere other than in someone's bin, but after his visit to Strangeways, he received a letter inviting him to London where he would begin his training in what was known as London's most wretched of prisons, Newgate. Training to be a hangman was a difficult task. Without hanging real people, practice was hard to come by. Ellis was also confused as to how exactly he would go about learning his craft, and was shocked to find that his first victim to fall through the trapdoor would be that of a stuffed dummy made of straw. After practicing on his grassy sacrifice numerous times, Ellis felt capable of executing someone correctly. However, in order to earn his stripes, he couldn't simply jump straight in. Becoming an assistant to a hangman was the preferred route, and with Ellis well aware that James Billington, the chief executioner at the time, getting older, he knew that if he put the hours in now, then his name might just be at the top of the pile to replace him when he retired. Ellis assisted with 32 executions before being given the ominous opportunity of taking senior responsibility for the first time. With great power comes great responsibility, and Ellis was soon about to find out how it would feel to have his conscience tested as the man in charge. The first to hang at the end of Ellis's rope was John Davis, a missionary to the Catholic Church. After John had made moves on one of his converts, Jane Harrison, who so happened to be a married woman, he became incredibly jealous, and even after leaving her partner, John was convinced she had been courting someone else alongside him. One day when his jealousy reached its peak, Davis snuck into the house of his beloved and slit her throat so deeply that she was seen by a neighbour stumbling out of her house with her hands holding her head which had fallen to one side. Jane Harrison died shortly afterwards and with the help of some neighbours and passers-by, Davis was held until the police came to take him away. Davis didn't take long to receive the death penalty and soon found himself waiting for his fate. Ellis was understandably nervous about his first solo dispatch, and in order to make sure everything would go off without a hitch, he was very diligent about his setup. 
after testing and retesting the trapdoors, checking the scaffold for any cracks that may cause it to snap or bend. He practised pinioning the arms behind the back and strapping the legs together of his new assistant. He must have wondered what he'd got himself into. After being satisfied that he could do this quickly and with no problems, Ellis set the final part of the scaffold together, the noose. In order for a rope to be able to support human weight, it needs to be stretched out overnight, which would mean the fibres inside the rope would flex when the drop happened, instead of tearing and breaking. The sandbag, roughly the same weight as the condemned, would be attached to the end of the rope to test its strength. But this time when Ellis prepared the rope, the eyelet used to hold the sandbag twisted and broke, causing the bag to tear. After a few repairs and reinserting the eyelet and trying it again, it failed once more, giving Ellis severe doubts about the following day. At 8am it was time for Davis to meet his maker, and with his preparations carried out the night before, Ellis was ready to prove his worth to not only the governor of the prison, but also to Davis. It was his duty to provide a swift and painless death. With everything in its right place, Davis was collected from the condemned cell and pinioned with his arms held behind his back by Ellis's assistant and walked to the scaffold. Usually the condemned were moved the day before their execution to a cell that was next to the execution shed, but Davis had been made to walk from his cell on the upper floor of the prison down a flight of stairs to the gallows. Ellis said how he found it a very sorry and upsetting sight to have to see Davis be assisted down the stairs in case he were to fall, and then walked along to the shed. Davis's face was mournful, with eyes so wide as to be thoroughly repentant as to what he had done, and this made Ellis hesitate before remembering his duty. In some ways, Ellis must have been relieved that he was the man to carry out the job, knowing it would be done diligently and with haste but also sorrowful to see someone who had truly learned their lesson sent to their death. As soon as Davis saw the scaffold, he would only have 45 seconds left to live his life before dropping through the trap door. Ellis and his assistant worked quickly as the hangman put the bag over his head. Then the noose, and his assistant strapped his feet together to stop any kicking out which could cause injury and the prisoner to effectively split themselves in half if they caught their legs either side of the trap door on the way down but it also made the body more pendulum-like, meaning the body would act as its own weight to deliver the fatal break needed to the spinal cord. With Ellis dashing to the lever to open the trapdoor, Davis disappeared, and Ellis listened for a second and watched the rope to see if it twitched at all, or if any sound could be heard from the pit below. Silence. Able to breathe a sigh of relief, Ellis was proud he'd been able to swiftly deliver the last part of Davis's sentence, if a little melancholy at the same time. With his first solo execution under his belt, Ellis felt confident that this was the profession he felt he could be good at, and begrudgingly carried on as a barber with his executing on the side. As the death penalty was being handed out less and less, and more appeals resulting in reprieves and downgraded sentences, it meant that only the most heinous of criminals were headed off to the gallows. The two most infamous names that Ellis pulled the lever on were Dr Crippen, whom you'll remember from a few episodes back, and also that of Edith Thompson. Thompson was sentenced to death after having been mixed up in a crime which many people believe she wasn't guilty of. When walking home one evening from a night out with her husband, the couple were ambushed. Shrieking to people for help, Edith soon noticed that they weren't simply being mugged. 
As she tried to find her husband in the darkness, she could feel he was bleeding, and soon after, he died from fatal stab wounds to his chest. Edith was utterly distraught, and the unfortunate occurrence was beginning to look like it may not be solved, until a knife from the scene was recovered and checked as to whom it may belong to. In tracing the weapon, police managed to tie the knife to a Freddie Bywaters, a 19-year-old man who happened to be a close family friend of the pair. When tracking down and arresting Bywaters, the police found a bundle of love letters penned by none other than Edith, and from that point on, her fate was sealed. In court, the letters were read to the jury and stated how Edith had claimed to have tried to off her husband Percy several times before through various methods. One included poisoning his food and another grinding up a light bulb and mixing it with mashed potato. But to Edith's dismay, the method she reportedly used never had any effect on Percy and she resorted to alluding to Freddie that something drastic had to be done if the two were to be together long term. Reported to have been heavily influenced by romantic fiction and dramas of the day, Edith thought of herself as a heroine from one of these novels and didn't charm herself to any of the court-goers who were to decide her fate. The judge thought she was overly dramatic and the jury clearly found her an opposable character to which they took a dislike. During the trial, she was advised strongly by her defence to not testify. However, she went against this advice and gave a long, convoluted and confused version of events which only led the jury to believe that she was even more guilty of the crime. Unsurprisingly, after a short deliberation, the jury found Edith guilty of murder. The jury saw 29-year-old Edith's manipulation and her consistent brainwashing of 19-year-old Freddie convincing enough and charged her as though she'd been the one to plunge the knife into Percy's chest herself even though she'd effectively had nothing to do with the actual crime apart from being there when it happened and having had an affair with the murderer. Edith didn't believe for a moment she would be given the death penalty. The public didn't either, and the cries for her appeal soon started. Edith would be the first woman to be hanged for murder in 15 years in England, and Ellis himself said that such a punishment for a woman didn't seem befitting of the supposed crime especially seeing as she had seemingly done nothing to harm Percy except get carried away with drama and fantasy. The general public felt that hanging was reserved for men, and a punishment so brutal was not suited for women, but protests, letters and an appeal to the Home Secretary all failed to save the neck of Edith. On the morning of the 9th of January, 1923, Ellis prepared himself to carry out Edith's hanging at Pentonville Prison and found himself feeling quite sad about the whole occasion. He too believed that Edith's punishment was overboard and felt that she'd probably learned her lesson just from her short stint in prison. Ellis was half expecting a reprieve to be made and readied himself to be sent back home to his barbershop, but with a heavy heart, the time came for Ellis to help Edith take her short walk to the scaffold. Ellis was very keen that his charges were well looked after up until their last fatal moment and would try to make the whole ordeal as calm as possible. He would deliver a list of duties to the warders of the condemned in advance, so everything was to run as seamlessly as possible. But with Edith, not all would go so well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Delivering instructions to the two wardresses of Edith's, Ellis suggested that she have a large glass of brandy at around five to nine to help her steady her nerves, but was instead allowed access to a whole bottle at around 8 a.m. and managed to drink quite a large amount of it by 8.30. The cell Edith had been placed in was right next to the scaffold in order to make her walk as short as possible, so all the preparations that had to be made the night before and on the morning could be heard by her, something Ellis had said he wasn't keen on happening. He requested Edith be moved to a cell further away, but this wasn't possible, so Edith had to endure hearing the setup sounds of her own execution equipment, including the testing of the sandbag falling through the trapdoor. The wardresses had allowed Edith to wear her own clothes for the execution instead of the standard issue prison uniform, which would cause another problem for Ellis. Usually when performing pinioning techniques to a man, Ellis had no problem with applying the straps to the ankles to bind the legs together, but Edith had chosen to wear a skirt as her final outfit, and this would mean Ellis would need to touch her legs. Without wanting to manhandle Edith, and without wanting to put his hand up her skirt, which would cause her an unnecessary alarm, he decided in advance that he would pinion her legs over her skirt instead of under, something he'd never had to consider with the male prisoners. At a moment before 9am, Alice was given the nod by the governor to begin Edith's last few moments on earth. As the door was opened by the wardress and the chaplain, Alice noticed that Edith was clearly overcome with grief at her own situation, and also rather intoxicated by the amount of brandy she had consumed. It was clear to Ellis that she would need some assistance in reaching the scaffold, so his assistant and another warder helped to carry her to her final destination. After realising that Edith wouldn't be able to stand for the execution, a chair was found for her to be sat upon, and she would have to be hung whilst sat down. The combination of fear and strong spirits caused Edith to faint, and this made things even harder to keep her upright on the seat. Ellis worked quickly whilst his assistant held Edith upright 
and the bag and noose were placed over her head as Alice shouted a warning to the assistant to get out of the way so he didn't fall through the trapdoors too. Edith dropped quickly and in a second it was all over except the sound of dripping could be heard from the pit below. With some trepidation the pit was approached and below Edith in the darkness a large pool of blood began to form beneath her feet. Confused at what had happened, as her body was not externally harmed apart from the obvious inflictions one would expect to see from a hanging, Ellis had her body pulled back up fairly quickly instead of being left to hang for the full hour as usual, and saw that Edith's skirt was soaked through with blood. Whilst in the prison, Edith had eaten very little, but still managed to gain over £11 in weight. To the horror of those who witnessed the execution, they were now aware that they hadn't just executed Edith, but her unborn child as well. The horror of Edith's execution got to Alice. If it had been checked to see if she was pregnant, she would have been spared, as from 1878 no pregnant woman had been hanged, even though it was legal to do so. But in 1931, a law was quietly passed to stop pregnant women from ever being hanged again. Whether this was to do with Edith or not isn't clear, but I'm sure any of the witnessing party that day would have definitely been in favour of the change. After Edith's execution, Ellis began to abuse alcohol and started to have depressive episodes. In December 1923, he performed his last ever hanging, and promptly sent his letter of resignation soon afterwards. After 203 hangings, Ellis had decided his career as England's executioner had come to an end. Ellis continued his barbershop business, but had become part of the cult of celebrity at that time, something he didn't wish to be. His notoriety meant that people would travel from all over the place to stand outside his barbershop, or in Ellis's words, sit in the chair with no need for a haircut, but wishing to ask bothersome questions. Ellis quickly grew tired of his fame, and one evening after locking up his shop, he went home, sat in front of the fire, and poured himself several large brandies to steady his nerves. He then made the decision that the only way things could get better was if he too faced the same fate as the prisoners that had fallen through the drop. In the early hours of the morning, with his family fast asleep, he drew a pistol up to his chin, and pulled the trigger. Annie, Ellis's wife, heard the bang from the drawing room and rushed to find John sitting quietly, still in his chair, head tilted back, with his white shirt stained with fast trickling blood. Realising what had happened, Annie thought she might be able to help him, and was amazed to see that he was still alive, but slightly dazed and a lot drunk. The doctor managed to patch up John, but unfortunately for him, he was then arrested as a result of trying to commit suicide something which was illegal at the time. Word soon spread that John was to be making an appearance in court, and people came from miles around and even paid to get into the courtroom on the day of his trial. Hundreds crowded outside the court, and upon John's arrival, fights broke out as people struggled to get a glimpse of this macabre icon. John appeared in court soon after his suicide attempt and still bore the wounds of his sorrow. His jaw was bandaged and his general appearance was unkempt, hair longer than usual, and unshaved. He had the appearance of a man who was truly forlorn. As sentencing was passed, 
the judge asked John to promise he would not try to take his own life again, and that he would give up the drink in order to live out the rest of his spare life he had been afforded. John left the court and returned to his barbershop in Rochdale, and as soon as the new chief executioner was in position, he was afforded a bit of the private life he'd been trying to claw back from the public. But this didn't stop him from seeking out some strange attention over the next few years. Firstly, he began to write his memoirs with the aid of a ghostwriter, but the book itself wasn't published until 1996. Ellis felt that it was important to tell his side of the story and how he managed to cope with his conscience after his retirement. In a bizarre and strange career move, he also decided to do a piece of acting in a play where he would play a hangman and night after night pretend to hang someone on stage as the final act of the play. The show wasn't well received and closed very shortly after it opened, as it was deemed to be too harrowing for its viewers. John also toured around giving talks about the profession and his expertise, but in the end he just continued to be a barber, and with the occasional gawker coming to sit in his chair, hoping for a few grisly tales which he never told. As the years went on, the banality of his life started to take its toll on him, and John returned to drinking to make his life more interesting and to drown his demons. He became increasingly unpredictable, and one night after returning home, he sat down to dinner with his family, and after eating, retired to his study alone. A few hours later, he called his wife and daughter to the table to share a cup of tea together, and as they were sitting there, in the silence, John calmly stood up and told them quietly to both leave the house, or he would slip both their throats. The two fled the house and went to John's son's house, a few streets away. On hearing the news, the son rushed to the family home and opened the door where his father had a kitchen knife held to his throat. He looked his son straight in the eye and calmly drew the blade across his neck. Over 400 people attended John's funeral, and he was laid to rest at St Mary's Church in Balderstone. No one from the prison service attended. Perhaps they were too ashamed to admit that the weight on John's conscience of the judicial practices he carried out on their behalf were what led him to his early grave. The death sentence for murder in Britain was eventually abolished in 1969, and in 1999, the death penalty in the UK was abolished altogether, with the signing of the Sixth Protocol of the European Convention of Human Rights in Strasbourg. But who gets to decide what punishment is suitable for others, and is life imprisonment an equal punishment for a horrific crime? Should the prisoner get to choose their own fate of life or death? Or maybe rehabilitation and therapy are the answer? Who knows what may happen after Brexit when the protection of the European Union around human rights is lifted? Maybe the scaffolds that are now out of commission may see their sturdy structures and trapdoors dusted off and re-oiled ready for their next victims, and a new chapter of bloody history may be born. No one knows yet, but if we see a return of the death penalty, then who could be Britain's next hangman? And would they end up going the same way as Ellis? Or could they pull the lever with a clear conscience and be satisfied with taking a life for a murder?
Thank you for listening to this episode of Macabre London. Do you fancy getting your mitts on a copy of John Ellis's book, Diary of a Hangman, that I used to research this episode? Of course you do, in order to be in with a chance of winning. All you need to do is subscribe to the podcast, then share any one of our episodes on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Please tag us into the post at Macabre London and leave the hashtag MLP giveaway in the comments. That's MLP giveaway to be in with the chance to win. The competition is open to listeners wherever you are in the world. And please make sure you remember to use the hashtag when you share the episode and to make your post public so I can see it. If you didn't quite get all of that, then visit our social media pages where you'll find all the info of how to take part. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, then please remember to rate, review and subscribe as it helps other people to find the podcast and to join our little macabre family. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We are at Macabre London and you can email us at macablondon at hotmail.com if you'd like to suggest an episode topic. Coming up next time on Macabre London, it's time for another Macabre mini-sode. Join us next time to find out about gruesomely named area of North London. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Macabre London is hosted on Acast, written, performed and created by me, Nikki Druce, with additional script editing by Neil Murray. For you, the listeners of Macabre London, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service and to see what audiobooks are all about. There's a ton of books to choose from on Audible, but let me give you some pointers of where to start. I've been enjoying London, the biography by Peter Aykroyd. Now, if you've ever seen this book in its physical form, you'll know that it's huge. It's too heavy to comfortably carry around in a bag. But with Audible, the beauty is, no heavy books. London the Biography is broken up into manageable sections on Audible, so you can just listen to the chapters you're interested in, and you don't necessarily have to commit to listening to the 800-page book in full. I'm currently enjoying the section on Fire and Pestilence, read by Simon Callow, if enjoying is the right word to use. So why not give it a go? Of course, you don't just have to listen to history. If you fancy giving Harry Potter a listen, then that's all there too, and read by national treasure Stephen Fry. Or you may want to give Katie Price's new novel a go, but don't want to be seen reading it in public. Well, then Audible is just for you. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash macabre London. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash macabre London for your free audiobook.